That was awesome. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> this is Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Would you pray with me? Lord God, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you never change. Lord, thank you for your goodness. You are holy, you are sovereign, you are merciful. Father, that you would look upon us and find us worthy to send your son Jesus to this earth. Father, we cling to him. Thank you for the gift of salvation that we have. Father, thank you for your word. It is so precious to us. Help us to draw closer to you, Father God. I pray um, that we would just hear your message today, Lord. And Father, truly live for you with what you speak to us, Lord in our daily lives, just outside this building, Lord, that we would let your light shine. Lord, speak through Chris. Thank you again for loving us unconditionally. To you be all the honor and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And we don't get to sing scripture like that every day. Good job. Can you imagine Jonathan in the car driving to work, just a rubber ball, and just kind of singing it out, memorizing all those things? Pretty amazing. So we are starting a new series um, in the book of Matthew, right? And if you're kind of curious, today is really going to be setting up the rest of the series that we're going to be studying. Because there's 28 chapters in the book of Matthew that we're going to be going through. That's 1,071 verses that we're covering, 23,084 words that we're going to read and sing, apparently, um, throughout the entire book of Matthew. And so as we begin to dive into these different things, we're going to start noticing sort of a flavor begin to come to the surface, because inside of the book of Matthew, we see 130 different Old Testament references where Matthew is pointing back to the Old Testament saying, see, this is what Jesus did. This was what they were talking about and pointing us towards those prophecies. And and something else unique about the book of Matthew is that 32 different times we're going to hear this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. Now, throughout the other gospels, we'll hear about the kingdom of God, but Matthew changes it, which gives us a little bit of a clue into who his audience is. Most likely, Matthew is writing to his Jewish brothers and sisters to help them understand that Jesus Christ is the king. And he doesn't use the name Yahweh or Adonai the Lord, and so he's, he's referencing the kingdom of heaven, this future thing that they're looking forward to. And we're going to see that through parables all throughout the book. And, and Matthew is the only one who mentions the Magi in the book. And the reason is because the Magi fulfill these Old Testament prophecies that are coming forward. So today we're really setting the scene for what's going to be happening. We're covering Jesus' birth through the time that he gets ready to get baptized all today. 
Well, not all today. Get ready, right? Because we're going to talk about a lot of different things kind of as we go throughout. And so and what's interesting about the four Gospels, right, is that they all have this different flavor or perspective on the way that Jesus lived his life. We're, let's look at those four different ones right now. Um, Matthew sees Jesus as the king. Long live the blessed king. Right? We, we, we see that we're going to be looking at throughout the entire book evidence of Christ being the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and that we should be following. Obedience is the way that we need to live our lives underneath of the rule and reign of a sovereign king. Right? That, that's the focus and the flavor that we're going to have throughout. When we talked about Mark a few years ago, we saw Peter right, giving to Mark his, his story, and it was focused on Jesus being a servant. How we're supposed to serve just as Christ came, not to be served, but to serve, that we were supposed to humble ourselves. What an incredible Jesus, the King of kings, but also the willing to serve in that way. And then when you look at, at Luke, right, he's this Gentile doctor, and, and he sees Christ as the Son of Man. He's just given a historical report. Here's where he went. Here's the things he did. All these sort of different things. But then John comes along later, and he writes the Gospel of John, and he's, he's unashamed about what he's doing. In fact, in chapter 20, he tells you, I'm writing these words so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So John's like, he is the Son of God, let me show it to you, right? So each one of them has this different flavor. If you were to break it down even more simple, right, Matthew was focusing so much on what Jesus said. If the king speaks, we need to listen. So we have like complete sermons in the book of Matthew, like the Sermon on the Mount, right, this, this beautiful podcast, I guess you could say, of Jesus where you get to see how Jesus taught them. We get parables and the explanations of parables in the book of Matthew where when you get to the book of Mark, Peter, when he's, he's recounting, he just focuses on Jesus's ministry. How did Jesus treat people? How did he treat the people that were around him? All right, And Luke's just like, this is what he did. Here's where he went. It took him three days to go here. And he just records on it where John is like, but this is who Jesus truly was, the son of God. And the four different Gospels give us a more complete picture of who Jesus is. Because there's people in the world out there who will say, oh, see, there's four different accounts. They don't always even agree on what's going on. See, this Jesus character, he's just a myth. Can't be real. John wrote it later. He, he turned him into this myth and this God, and that's not true. Different perspectives give us a more complete picture. Let me give you an example. If I was standing out in the foyer, people might come in and go, hey, Chris, how's it going? Some people might call me Pastor Chris. Some people might call me Coach. Some people call, might call me a hypocrite. Some people might call me Dad, right? Some people might like, bro. Some people might just run into me like the youth kids and just knock me down, right? Um, all kinds of different ways that you agree. But if you were to go to these different people and ask, so what is Chris like? If you go to my kids and you go to them and you ask, what is, what is Chris like? And they said, he's a great guy and he doesn't abuse us. Okay? And then you go to my coworkers like, what is Chris like? He's a great guy and he doesn't abuse his kids. Okay? If everybody had the same script, would you believe it more? Or would you start questioning? Because, see, if you ask my kids, I don't abuse my kids, but, okay, um, but if you ask my kids about me, you're going to find a picture of what I'm like away from here, what I'm like at home, the things that I like to do, my hobbies, the, the trips we've gone on, things we've done. If you ask um, somebody who calls me coach, you might have a, a recollection of something that I've done on the football field. I met one of my ex-players when we were getting ready to go to Africa. Um, he was a policeman in the airport. He's like, hey, what's up? Do you remember me? I'm like, 
Oh, you didn't have a beard when I coached you in high school. Um, but, and we got to meet and recap. And, oh, you remember we used to do this and, and talk to Glennis Taylor this week, who was my co-teacher in class, just a, a saint of a woman um, who helped me make it through life. Um, but we, one of our students saw her at, at the Ford dealership like, oh, you remember when you did that joke of the day? Remember when you used to give out Laffy Taffy? And there was just this, this affection of, oh, I remember what it was like to be in your math class. I liked going to your class. What? You like going to math class, right? And so you see a different picture based upon different people's perspectives. Even those that call me hypocrites, they're probably right. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God, right? All of those give us a more complete picture of who a person is, and the same is true about Christ. So we're going to see these different flavors as we study through the gospel. But Matthew's focus is Jesus is the king, the king of kings, the Lord of Lords, and everything that he writes is going to be laser-focused in on showing us that he is the king. And so he starts in an interesting way, doesn't he? In fact, when you look at Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the first place he starts is here's the family tree, right? Here's the DNA test, 23andMe, here you are, right? And he's going to lay out for us the lineage, just as Jonathan is saying, of all of these different stories and people that were in the lineage of Jesus. And my question was like, why? Like, like why, why, why would he do, why would, G, why would Matthew start here to teach us about Jesus as the king? So what, what is the purpose of genealogies? In the Jewish culture, there were three purposes. And you see genealogies all throughout Bible reading. If you've been right, reading through the Bible straight, you've seen the list. That just go forever, right, in there. Why? Well, a couple of different reasons. Three main reasons, biblically, that there's a genealogy, okay? Number one, um, ownership of the land, right? In, inside of biblical things, whose land was whose? When the tribes split up and, and different places they were supposed to live, the genealogy would link them back to land ownership, right? Uh, the second reason would be nationality, right? The nation building. Are you from Abraham? Are you one of God's chosen people? And there would be this lineage that ties them back into that family. And the third was to authenticate their status, primarily in two arenas. Number one, were they royalty? In order to be the king, you had to come from the royal line. And in the Jewish culture, if you wanted to become a priest, you had to be born of the tribe of Levi. You had to be a Levite in order to be a, be a priest. And so we see these different reasons being laid out inside of Matthew chapter 1. In fact, he gives a quick summary. Again, look back at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he gives a quick shout out to two people that are in this list, right? First one is David. The second one is Abraham. Why? Again, as you're reading through Matthew, you go, why is that there? Hmm, that's interesting. Why would he kind of give a synopsis and then give the long list? Well, let's think about Abraham. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 12 um, and the call of Abraham. W let's see if we notice any of those three genealogy things that we were talking about with Abraham that would establish Jesus inside of this family. Here's what it says in verse 1, chapter 12, Genesis. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So Abraham was the first one to establish this is the land that I want my people to be in. Travel from Ur. Go travel until I tell you to stop. That's going to be the land that I'm going to give you and your future descendants. And then he says, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great 
so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How through Abraham are all the generations, all the families going to be blessed? Because of the coming king. Because of Jesus who is going to come through this godly line. And if you don't believe me, go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. And Paul gives us even more clarity into this, that, that Jesus is the whole point that the whole point of this whole thing, look what it says. It says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. But it does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to the offspring who is Christ. That even in Genesis 12, God was calling his shot that through Abraham, he was going to establish a land. He was going to establish a people. And one was going to come to bless the whole world. That was going to be Jesus. And what about David? What, what, what do we know David as? Well, we know David as King David, right? 2 Samuel chapter 7 talks about how David's throne will be established forever. And someone will remain on that throne for eternity. Who is that person going to be? It was going to be Jesus. And we see already that Matthew's pointing to the lineage of Jesus saying, see the promises of the land, the promises of his people, the promises of the kingship were all found inside of Jesus. And even though there's a lot of names to get lost in, we see this beautiful picture of who Jesus is going to be. Now, we're supposed to have faith in Jesus, but there's evidence for Jesus and who he was. There's evidence behind our faith that shows us that God was who he said he was and that Jesus came as the king of kings and he was the plan from the very beginning. So let's look at these names. Let's just kind of highlight a couple names through this. As you're reading or listening um, through the list, there's some names that kind of jump out to you, right? Let's start in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob would become Israel, be renamed after the little wrestling incident that happened, right? He'd become Israel and then he had 12 sons and Judah was the son, the line of Judah. The lion of Judah was a name for Jesus at the time because he came through that family line. Um, Judah, the, f- the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Woo. Anybody have that kind of crazy uncle in your family line? Anybody kind of have that crazy, like, down-the-line story, like, oh, we try to forget about that one? Right? right here in this list, we have some crazy stories. Like, this... This story about Tamar, like, oh, if you go home and you're curious, like, oh, who's Tamar? I'm curious why she's on the list. Like, don't open it up and just start reading out loud to your kids. Because this story is spicy, right? Tamar dresses up as a prostitute. Judah comes in. She gets the signet ring. It's, it's, a, it's a story. It's just a story, okay? And so if you've read, read through Genesis with your kids before, you've been to that point where you stopped a mid-sentence and went, um, let's skip to the next paragraph, right? Because there's just, there's story, real life happening in there, right? And Perez fathered Hezron and Ram and Aminadab and Nashon. And you're like, never heard of them. Never heard of them. Are they still important in the story of God? I mean, Abraham, yes, we've heard of, right? David, Solomon, yeah, heard of them. Hezron? I only know one Hezron. I met him in Africa a few weeks ago. Who's, Hez- who's Ram? Cool name. He's a place of football. Ram, right? It's a good name. But who, what we need to realize is that some people, their name gets in light. Some people's names, that they, people know them, but they're still, those names that nobody knows are so vital to the story of God. 
Because each one of these people represent a story, a life lived for God that adds to the story of what God is doing in the world. And that's true of you and true of me. That your story is vital to what God is doing in the world. Do you, realize, do you believe that? That your life matters for the kingdom of God. The way that you treat people matters to God. The way that you treat the waitress or the waiter at the restaurant, the way that you treat the person beside you at the, the stop sign when they or in front of you when they keep getting looking at their phone and you're like, beep, beep, or you're like, ah, right? The way that you treat them matters because when you pass them really fast and it has the fellowship sign on the back of your car, right? It matters how you treat people. The way you walk through H-E-B, people are watching you. Your life has an opportunity to pour into the grand narrative that God has for the world. Every one of our stories matter. You, you never know how you impact people's lives by the way that you live, the way that you walk, the way that you treat the least of these. That's our calling. So every one of these names, when I see them, I'm like, Aminadab? Man, I hope in heaven I get to see the story of Aminadab. Now listen, some of the names on this list, woo, they were not good people. Like instead of the heroes, they might be the villain. In fact, as you keep reading through the list, they end up getting conquered by Babylon, don't they? And when you look at this list, you see Gentile, you see Rahab. Talk about a spicy story. She's an innkeeper, right? And she has a red stripe. And then Jericho falls down, but not her corner of the building because she believes in God. You see all these. You see Ruth coming in, right? The Moabites who come. You see these incredible stories all woven in. Even the wife of Uriah. Even David and his sin. God can redeem even the worst of things that happen. Isn't it interesting how Matthew doesn't call her Bathsheba? The wife of Uriah. Don't forget the story. Don't forget, even in the worst of times, God is still at work. And this is what this genealogy talks about. And when you look to there's there's interesting names. Like, for example, Zerubbabel. Anybody name your kid Zerubbabel? Now, you should. Cool name. I don't want to spell it, right? My name's Chris Smith, as boring as you get, right? <laughs> no Zerubbabel in my, my name, right? But Zerubbabel, when you think of Zerubbabel, right, it's this interesting character. Zerubbabel was actually so vital to the restoration of Jerusalem. In fact, um, after the Babylonians had conquered, right, and they were in there, remember Daniel and all the stuff that happened during that time, right, this edict of Cyrus came out, and and Zerubbabel got to go back and start rebuilding the temple, start getting things in order and and bringing, reestablishing the priesthood at that time. And then Ezra got to come back. Then Nehemiah got to come back when Arxaxerxes uh, gave the command. And so all of them had a vital role to play in this kind of threefold restoration of Jerusalem. And Zerubbabel was one of them. Maybe a name we've never thought of. Maybe a name that's just kind of been out there. But every one of them had a vital part in the plan of God. And so do we. Don't miss that. Your story matters. Your story, regardless of how hard, challenging, or beautiful, it all is woven in to the story of God. And then verse 17 is the most fascinating verse to me that we're going to read today. Um, it says this, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 
14 generations. And we see this plan of God beginning to unfold, right? These three sets of 14 or 42 or six sets of seven that are kind of laid out here being the plan. God had a plan and a purpose and a design. And what was happening, we see these different kind of establishments, these kind of major stages of Israel, right? Abraham beginning a nation, Right? He begins this nation they, they did establish with David as being the king. And when David becomes the king, we now have this kingdom. This kingdom that's begun with, with him and Solomon and so on. But then the kings begin to sin and the kings begin to fall away. They begin to worship in the high places. They begin to worship idols. We won't bow down to idols. We'll worship you. We're just saying, right? But they didn't. They began to elevate other things, and then Babylon came in. And all of a sudden, after Babylon, it became this restoration, both physically and spiritually, where Jesus came to restore and to build a new eternal kingdom, which was to come. And that's where we're picking up the story. Christ has come, and he's beginning to build this new thing, this new spiritual kingdom that will last for eternity. And that's where we get to live Underneath of it. So we see this picture, this kind of plan beginning to unfold. And what it made me go on a journey was, well, what is, what is the evidence that we have for Christ coming? What, what is the evidence that we have of these 14 generations? It sounds like a time stamp. It sounds like God said, hey, I'm doing this. Let me show you what I've been doing in there, right? And so it made me start thinking about what is the evidence that we have for Christ in the Old Testament, because as we keep going through Matthew, you're going to notice him beginning to build out this case for Jesus being the Messiah or the King. And so it made me think about a couple of things. Uh, what makes evidence good evidence in a case, right? There's two different categories that kind of came to, um, as I was reading through and studying some different books, um, J. Warner Wallace, an amazing um, author, some of the stories he's writing about. There's two different ones, and I, and I called them clear and retro, right? Clear evidence is evidence that points forward. Right, so if there's clear evidence for Jesus, that would be a prophecy that's unquestioned prophecy for the Messiah that's happened before he came and pointed forward to something that he was going to do. And we're going to talk about some of that clear evidence today for Jesus. But then there's also what's called retro evidence, right, where you take evidence and you look back and you go, oh, now that I've seen Jesus' life, I see how this prophecy applied to him, right? So this would be like retro Christ lived, he died, he resurrected, he's now reigning with, with God in heaven, sitting in the right hand of God. Now I can see what was going on. Now I see Psalm 22. Now I see some of these things that have unfolded, right? Now clear evidence is stronger, isn't it? Because clear evidence is saying that there is going to be this person that comes and they're going to be the Messiah. They're going to be the king. And that's what we're going to focus on today. What clear evidence do we have from the Old Testament that Matthew begins to bring out? That says that Jesus was the Messiah, the king, what we have there. So that's what we're going to dive into as we begin to get into this evidence. Now, one of the ways we get clear evidence is through reliable witnesses, right? Reliable witnesses, people who have seen what's going on. And, and in the Old Testament, we have some reliable witnesses. And this is what Jesus himself relied on. Do you remember when after the walk to Emmaus, right, in Luke chapter 24, right, Jesus kind of gives them this evidence. And here's what he says, um, Luke 24 um, he, he says this, um, maybe it's up there, okay, um, when he said this, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, and he opened their minds to the scripture. So he's saying, hey, look at my life 
and look at the law of Moses. What did Moses say about me? And see how the evidence stands up. What did the prophets, these reliable witnesses, say about me, right? What did the Psalms and David write about me? All of those things point to me being who I say I am. That, that, that's, that's his evidence for it. And in fact, when you look back at some of these reliable witnesses, you see people like Moses, right? The law of Moses. Do you remember what Moses said about prophets? That all of their prophecies had to be true. If they said they were speaking for God and one of them didn't happen to be true, they were a false prophet. So he sets an extremely high standard for these reliable witnesses because a reliable witness is someone who has told you a fact, told you evidence, and has proven true. When they, it's proven true before, it makes them a more reliable witness later. So look at some of these. Now think about some of the minor prophets. Like think of Nahum. Have you read the book of Nahum? I, I read it because it's like really short and I could feel good. Like I read a book of the Bible. Woo, right? Um, it was like really short. But in Nahum, he's prophesying about the destruction of Nineveh in chapter 1, verse 10. And in the verses, he tells that they're going to be drunk on the wine of their debauchery and that before the, the judgment of the Lord comes in and sweeps them away. And when you look at the historical evidence of the destruction of Nineveh, it was during a festival. And their debauchery led them astray. So when they had to fight, they were drunk and they couldn't even fight and they were destroyed. Right? You look back at um, Ezekiel and, and his prophecies about the destruction of Tyre. Right? This, this city, this kind of island city. And it says that all of the buildings are going to be thrown down into the sea. And then you look through history and Alexander the Great conquered Tyre. And how did he do it? He took the buildings and he threw them into the sea and he made a land bridge to cross so this army could conquer the city of Tyre, just like Ezekiel said it was going to be. You look at these reliable prophets, and you're like, man, they were right about that. I wonder if they're right about the coming king. I wonder if their evidence is going to be true. Or look at Daniel. What an amazing man Daniel was. Chapter 1, he's like, no, I'm not going to eat the king's food. I'm standing for the Lord. Chapter 2, this statue, a head of gold, arms of silver, standing for the different nations of the world. And then when you look through history, those four nations of the world come to be. You're looking, it gets even more specific with the beast. You have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego getting thrown in the furnace. You have all these incredible stories. In fact, in chapter 8, verse 8 of Daniel, he actually prophesies about the destruction of Alexander the Great, who we just talked about. In fact, he calls him a goat in this a vision that Daniel's having. He sees this goat with one large horn just running through and, and just sweeping through, conquering all the lands that are around, which sounds exactly like Alexander the Great. But here's what it says. It says, then the goat became exceedingly great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. And when you look at history, Alexander the Great's kingdom gets left to his four generals. And those four generals begin to take over the land, and the kingdom falls apart and sets the scene for Rome to come in and to conquer the known world. What? Daniel's prophesying things that were going to come true in history, that we see reliable evidence. And notice what Daniel says in chapter 9, because what we're going to see is evidence for this coming king. Look what it says in chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Who does that sound like? Who put an end to sin? Who was the atonement for it? Woo, that sounds a lot like Jesus, right? 
Then he says this, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word of the, to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one will be cut off and shall have nothing. By the way, did you know what that word anointed one is in the, in the Hebrew? Messiah. That the word Messiah means the anointed one. This is the time that it appears in Scripture. So after 62 weeks, he's going to be cut off. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. To the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Whew, that's a lot. What's going on here, right? He, Daniel gives a timeline for the anointed one to come. He says, in between these two events, during that time, an anointed one will come. What are the two events? The first one is a return to rebuild Jerusalem. So whether you count Cyrus's edict in 539 AD as being that point, or Artaxerxes in 445 BC, when he actually gave Nehemiah the chance to go back and rebuild the city, at that starting point, until the destruction of Jerusalem which happened in 70 AD, in between that time, the anointed one would come. So we know something now from the Old Testament looking forward that there, we know when the anointed one is going to come. But then it gets even more interesting. Look what it says again in Matthew. Let's go back. And let's, we're going to read the Christmas story. I know we didn't sing like, oh, come let us adore him. Right? We didn't sing any Christmas songs today. But as we read this story of Jesus' birth, I want you to notice, is there any evidence being presented in it? Now, the, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You feel the echoes of Daniel 9? He'll save their people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Who is Matthew quoting? He's quoting Isaiah. Is Isaiah a reliable witness? Do we have any evidence that the things that Isaiah said came true? Well, if you remember several weeks ago, we read out of Isaiah 45 verse 1, where Isaiah prophesied that in 150 years, a man named Cyrus would come. And he would let the people go back into the land. That would be the end of the captivity when a man named Cyrus came, looking forward, predicted his name. You see Isaiah prophesying about the destructions of different um, areas as well. You see these things true. And here we have how is the Messiah going to come into the world. So we have a when. Now we have a how. He's going to come in through a virgin birth. This is going to be a sign to you. So all the world will know that he's going to be born of a virgin. That's from Isaiah chapter 7. Do we believe that to be true? Do we say, oh wow, who came during that time period and who was born of a virgin? They're going to be the promised king. 
the one that was to come. But Isaiah gives even more evidence. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, um, he talks about coming from the stump of David, right? Here's what he says. says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from the roots and that shall bear fruit. Who was Jesse? David's dad, right? Come from the, the stump of Jesse, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Woo! When did the spirit descend upon him? At the baptism of Christ, which we're going to talk about next week. He's from the, the root of Jesse. He's going to be in the kingly line of David, that when they lined everybody up, they anointed David to be the king. So we've got not only the, the when, not only the how through the virgin, but the who. This is going to be someone of royal birth in the line of David that was to come. See, if Jesus didn't fulfill those things, he wouldn't be the king of kings and lord of lords. And yet, through the genealogies, yet through the prophecies, we see that Jesus did accomplish those things. Well, let's keep going um, in Matthew chapter 10. Let's look at the wise men that are going to come up. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Woo! All right, so here come the Magi, right? Coming around, foreigners coming to say, we saw a star, we saw a light. We've been following this light. Where is this king of the Jews? And who do they ask? The king. Herod is not, I can't know why, but as I read this scene, I keep thinking of Terry in the back and the scene just being like that grumpy king Herod. Thank you, Terry, for that. Um, I just have this picture of Herod. Look what he says. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. This is going to be the enemy of Jesus. King Herod is literally going to try to kill baby Jesus, and yet they are proclaiming the where. So not only do we have when, how, through the virgin birth, or through the line of David, we actually have a location in Bethlehem he's going to be born. His enemies are even saying this is the prophecy that's going to have to be fulfilled, and of course Christ fulfilled it. Who is this quote from? From Micah. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Was Micah a reliable witness? That said, this is where the king of kings be born, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the city of David. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Liar, right? That is not what's happening. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Woo! Have you done that lately? Have you rejoiced exceedingly with great joy? 
That's a lot of joy, right? Can, can I give us a challenge? What if you were to rejoice exceedingly with great joy this week? What would it take? I mean, these are wise men that now see a star who are going to leave behind gifts, who were prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 60, that they were going to come and they were going to be the ones to bring frankincense and gold. They were prophesied way before, and now they're here. And what are they filled with? They're filled with joy. Do you have that kind of joy? What brings you joy? Does it bring you joy to get up and read the word? Like, oh, I've been hungry and I can't, can't believe I even have to sleep. I wish I was just doing the work of God 24-7. Oh, man, I can't wait to see this life transform. I, I'm ready to go have joy as we walk through this process. This person being set free. This person seeing their life change. Does that bring you joy? Because here are the wise men. There's a joy about them. And they're going to leave their gifts after. They don't go leave their gifts and go, um, um a lot of gold. What are you going to use that for? Oh, you're going you're gonna to escape to Egypt using that gold so that, you know, Herod doesn't kill you? Oh, uh, okay, I guess that's a good reason, okay. Um, oh, how about the frankincense? Oh, that represents the prayers from the, from the tabernacle showing that it's going to be like God, he's going to be this gift. Oh, I guess that's okay. What about the myrrh? That's really expensive myrrh. Oh, this baby's going to die for the sins of the world? We're going to use this for anointing oil for him, but yet he's going to rise again? I guess you don't need that. I mean, did they give their gifts with an asterisk? Oh, you can use my gifts if you use them for good things. Or did they just lay their gifts before them and say, Lord, whatever you want to do with it, it's good. How do we bring our gifts before the Lord? Do we bring our gifts to the Lord and say, Lord, whatever you want to do, I'm here. Magnify your name through my life. Is that how we live? Or say, I have this gift, Lord, but can you help me use it for this on my off time whenever my kids don't have a soccer game? Can you help me use it then? Or do we just lay it before him and say, Lord, whatever you want to do, use me. Bring me that exceedingly great joy. Help me rejoice. Do we live as Christians rejoicing in the Lord? I hope so. I want to. I want to live that way. Because, man, what a better draw to the people of the world that they see the people of God living with joy in the midst of rough things and hard things. We're like, yeah, but the joy of the Lord, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Constantly be joyful always. The Bible tells us. And we see this picture in the Magi. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Ooh, let's live that way this week. Let's have joy, exceedingly great joy this week. Let's offer the Lord our gifts, the best of us to him. That's our challenge from this story. We know that the when, the how, the where of Jesus, our faith is placed in a good place. Let's rejoice at that. Okay, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for um, the book of Matthew, Lord, as we get ready to dive in and, and see you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to continue to have joy, to worship you, to thank you, Lord, for all that you have done, that you're not just a king that sits off on a throne and, and orders us around, but, Lord, you're a king that stepped out of heaven to live a life that we couldn't live, tempted in every way we were but without sin. And, Lord, you've given us an opportunity to have joy. So, Lord, I pray that you help us have joy this week in you. Thank you, Lord, for the amazing prophecies that point to your birth. Um, help us, Lord, to rest 
on that firm foundation, which is the truth of your word. We love you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Chris. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the question is, what are you going to do with King Jesus? What are you trusting in to get to heaven, to be delivered from the penalty of sin? See, Jesus already paid that penalty of sin by dying on the cross and rising from the grave. And you can be saved by faith alone in Christ alone. You can do that now. Hey, I want to highlight one of our special teams. We have uh, several teams in our church that, uh, that makes things happen. And one of them is our hospitality team. It's headed up by Melody, uh, Melody Lopez. And uh, it's a great team that, you know, when we have, like today, we're going to have our path crew leaders luncheon. Well, the hospitality takes care of that. Uh, we have all different kinds of, <clears throat> of um, ministries and, and uh, uh, some of the other path groups to get together and do things. Uh, that require putting food together and, and help decorating. Well, the hospitality team takes care of that. So first of all, I want to uh, just give some praise and shout out to Melody and her team. They do such a wonderful job. There's already some back there. If, if you can turn, you can look. She's wearing a pink hat and she's got a real bright face, colored red face right now because I put her on the spot. But if you are interested in joining this great team, and uh, you... You know, so I, I love helping, and I love serving, and I love, you know, help putting meals together and decorating and stuff. We're going to have a, a, a meeting about the hospitality team soon. We'll let you know when that will be. You can come to that meeting and just hear what, what all that's about. Hey, today is Path Group Sign-Up Day. It's not the last one, though, but you can go out and talk to the Path Group leaders. They're at the tables there when you walk out. Uh, also, there, everybody know where the Path Group wall is? When you walk at it, it's on your right. It's really easy because it says path group. So you can find it like that. In front of the table, and there's a bunch of uh, Matthew workbooks that goes right along with the sermon series. And if you're in a path group that you're doing the sermon series, then find the stack that has the last name of the path group leader. Go ahead and grab one. If you're not in a path group that's doing the series, you're doing another study, you can still grab a workbook. Just don't grab one with the name on it, okay? There's one, some on the right side of the table. You can just grab one of those. We got plenty. We just want you to be able to go through the sermon series with us. There's great questions to work through together. Um, we want to do that. But like I said, today's not the last day to sign up. You can still sign up online. If you have any questions about it, feel free to ask me, and I'd love to get you, get you plugged in. Y'all had a great day today, worshiping the Lord. Let's finish off with this verse. Psalm 145, 13 says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. You believe that? Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.